You can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. So we've been working through the book of Romans, um, particularly these last several chapters as we've been working through chapters 9 through 11. Paul has been trying to answer the question, which is this, has the word of God failed? In particular, has it failed to the Israelites? Has the word failed to bring salvation to the Jews? And Paul's answer time and time again is no, it has not failed. And he has defended this answer in a number of ways. First, God never determined to save all of the Jews. We find this in the first half of chapter 9. Second, God never said that he would save all of the Jews. We find that in the second half of chapter 9 as well. Third, God's word did not fail. Rather, it is the Jews who failed to believe, and they rejected the Messiah. We find that in chapter 10. Fourth, God's rejection of the Jews is only partial. He is maintaining a faithful remnant of the Jews that have come to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. There were Jews in Paul's day that were Christians, that were believing, just as there are Jews today that have accepted Christianity and believe in Christ. And we find this in the first half of chapter 11. Paul's final argument for this question is that God's rejection of the Jews is only temporary. Essen talked about this last week when when he preached on the tree and the branches. And at the end of that passage, in verses 23 through 24, we read this. And even they, the Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the Jews, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? So the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is a continuation of that thought. And it also provides a summary and a conclusion to everything he's been writing about and talking about in chapters 9 through 11. Now you might be here this morning thinking to yourself or asking yourself this question, why should I even care? After all, most of you, if not all of you, are not Jews. Why should we care about what happens to Israel? You might be tempted because of that to tune out this passage, not really think about what Paul writes here. But I encourage you not to do that. Because what Paul says is very important. And not only is it important, it is applicable to our lives. It's very practical, and it is a great encouragement to us, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. So with that in mind, I ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And I'm going to read for us verses 25 through 32. And remember, this is the Word of God given to us in love, and it is absolutely true. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Please pray with me. Lord, we do thank you for your holy word. We know that your word is without error, without fault. 
that it is absolutely true and that it is authoritative over our lives. And Lord, we pray particularly as we deal with this passage before us this morning, one that has been debated throughout the history of the church, we ask that you would give us wisdom and discernment and clarity. We pray that we would be both challenged and encouraged by what we hear this morning. We ask that your spirit would be at work in and through our hearts and our minds, and that you would be glorified by this time together this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. A helpful backdrop to this passage is the covenant that God made with Abraham, and we find this in the book of Genesis. If you remember, God had made a promise to Abraham. He promised Abraham that he would make Abraham into a great nation. He promised him that Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. That's what the picture on the front of the cover is showing us. It's, a, it's of Abraham looking up at the stars and being reminded of the promises God gave him. God not only promised to, to make Abraham's descendants great and to make him into a great nation, but he also promised that he would give them land. But most importantly, God promised that he would be the God of Abraham's descendants and that they would be his people. Abraham's descendants became the Israelites. They were God's special chosen people. But not only did God make these covenant promises to Abraham and to Israel, he promised that he would use Israel to be a blessing to all the nations. And Paul shows us in this passage that's before us this morning that God was and is and will continue to be faithful in keeping his promises. He will fulfill all of his covenant promises he made to Israel, and he will use Israel to be a blessing to all of the nations. So how is God able to do that? It is because he is sovereign and because he is merciful. First, God is sovereign. And his sovereignty is on display in, in how he dispenses his grace upon his people and upon the world. He does this mysteriously and he does it through election. Look at what Paul says about God's mysterious grace in verses 25 to 27. He writes, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them, that I will take away their sins. So Paul talks about a mystery in verse 25. What, what is this mystery? Well, we need to understand that it is not some secret knowledge that only the elite can know. It is not some truth that's reserved just for the, the super spiritual Christians in the world. No, not at all. Paul wants all Christians, he wants all of us to know and understand this mystery. And it is especially important for the Gentile Christians to know this mystery. Why? Because the truth of this mystery, understanding this truth, is going to impact the way they view themselves as well as the way they view others. In particular, this mystery will humble us and it will keep us from becoming conceited. Paul wants us to know this so that we will not be wise in our own sight. You see, the Gentile Christians, they believed that they were superior to the Jewish Christians. They believed that God's blessing was upon them and them alone. And they actually held that against the Jews. They looked down upon the Jews. And Paul has already addressed this several times throughout Romans. In verse 18, he exhorts the Gentiles for them not to be arrogant. Verse 20, he tells them not to become proud. And here he tells them not to become conceited. Why should they view themselves this way? 
it is because there is nothing for them to boast in. There's nothing for them to boast about. And this is true for everyone here today. As Christians, we should not be arrogant, we should not be proud, and we should not be conceited. Because there is nothing for us to boast in in and of ourselves. Paul wants us to know this mystery in order that we would be humbled. As a matter of fact, anytime God's truth is revealed to you, it brings humility. It leads us to humility. So what specifically is this mystery? Well, it was a truth that was unknown until God's plan of redemption had unfolded to a certain point. It is a truth that he made known. It was something that was previously hidden that he has now made known. And this truth consists of three parts. First, there's a partial hardening that has come upon Israel. God has hardened the hearts of his chosen covenant people, but it was not a full and complete hardening. There was still a faithful remnant. Through every generation, there was a faithful remnant of Jews that believe on Jesus. Second, this hardening will not remain on Israel. Sorry, this hardening will remain on Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So not only is this hardening partial, but it is temporary. God has not completely abandoned his people. This hardening will come to an end. And not only that, but he is using it to do something amazing among the Gentiles. The Gentiles are being brought into his kingdom. He is showing mercy to them. And he will continue to redeem and to reconcile Gentiles until every chosen Gentile is saved and brought into his family. The third thing that we see in this mystery is that all Israel will be saved. So what does that mean? Well, it's important to know up front that that this passage, particularly that verse and that concept of all Israel will be saved, is one of the most hotly debated issues in the Bible. Um, It's been debated for for centuries And there are four popular interpretations. The first interpretation is what's known as the two-kingdom view. Those that hold to that view, they believe that the Bible teaches that there are two tracks to God. There is the Israel track and there is the Gentile track. Gentiles are saved by accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and they are brought into the kingdom of God through Him. And Jews are saved because of the covenant promises that God has made to them as His covenant people. And although, yes, the Jews are experiencing a time of separation from God, that time will come to an end and God will restore national Israel once again. And that is what what some people believe that's what Paul is talking about here, that he's talking about this national restoration of Israel, the second kingdom. Well, that view needs to be rejected because the Bible never talks about two distinct kingdoms. It never talks about two tracts. To God, it always talks about there being one kingdom, and that one kingdom contains two people. It contains both Jews and Gentiles. Matter of fact, even last week when we talked about the the trees and the branches, it talks about two branches being grafted into one tree. Now, the other three interpretations, they all have merit, and there are, are people that I respect that believe any of these three options. The first one is this, that some, some believe that this passage teaches that there will be a mass revival of the Jews before Jesus returns. Others believe that what Paul is talking about here is he's not actually talking about the, the nation of Israel. He's not talking about ethnic Jews. He's talking about spiritual Jews, which Paul refers to earlier in the book, that all the elect are the new Israel. And that's what Paul is talking about here, is that all the elect, all of God's chosen people, the church, will be saved. The third option is that others believe that what Paul is teaching here 
is that God will continue to save a remnant of Israel in every generation. In every generation, there will be a remnant of Israel that God will continue to redeem until Jesus returns. And in that remnant, that the, the nation of Israel in that sense will continue to grow bigger and bigger and bigger until Jesus returns. Tim Keller states his, his, this position well. He says, Paul's language allows for the possibility of a steady but growing flow of Jews into Christianity until we arrive at the place where more or most Jews have come to believe. And just to put all my cards on the table, that's the position that I hold to. Now, regardless of which one of these positions you hold to, regardless of what you believe Paul is saying specifically about all Israel be saved, there are several truths that we can all agree on. First, salvation is in Christ alone. There is no other way to be saved. You're saved through Jesus alone. Second, anyone and everyone who rejects Jesus is an enemy of God. Third, the time for repentance, the time of coming to faith in Christ, will come to an end when Jesus returns. Once Jesus returns, there will be no more repentance and no more faith at that point in time. No more opportunity, I should say, for people to come to faith. Fourth, that God is redeeming and reconciling all believers, both Jews and Gentiles, into one people, which is the church, which is under Christ as their head. So as long as we agree on those points, we can disagree on how to specifically interpret this idea that all Israel is saved, and we can still come to the same conclusions and applications. And we see this passage that God is faithful in keeping all of his promises. Paul reminds us of this, of this by quoting several passages out of Isaiah, and these passages show us that God would send his Messiah to deliver his people, that he would do this by removing ungodliness and removing sin from them, and by fulfilling the covenant for them. And the heart of the covenant, once again, is that God will be their God and they will be his people. So these passages from Isaiah, they pointed forward, they pointed to Jesus. And Paul is saying that Jesus has come and that he has accomplished exactly that. Because of him, this mystery has been revealed. Yes, Israel is experiencing a partial and temporary hardening. And the purpose of that hardening is to be a blessing to the Gentiles, leading many Gentiles to Christ and being brought into his kingdom. But at the same time, God is continuing to keep a faithful remnant of Israel. And all of these things, Gentiles coming in, faithful remnant of Israel coming in, will continue to happen until Jesus returns. At that time, the full number of the Gentiles will be saved. We see that in verse 25. The full number of Gentiles will be brought in. But at that time also, the full number of Israel will also be saved. We find that back in verse 12. It's interesting that Paul uses the same word in both places. He applies this word to the Jews, and he applies this word to the Gentiles. And that just reminds us that God is sovereign over over the salvation of his people, both the Jews and the Gentiles. Jesus will not return until every last one of his chosen people is saved and is redeemed. And that is good news. If you've been chosen by God, there is nothing that will stand in the way of your salvation. Let that sink in for a second. No matter how things may look around you, no matter how you may even feel about your relationship with the Lord, if God has chosen you, you will come to Him. And Paul makes this even more clear in verses 28 and 29. Look at what he says about God's electing grace. He writes, As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So Paul says two things about the Jews here. He says that they are enemies, but he also says that they are beloved. 
And these two things are simultaneously true. They are enemies and they are loved. Israel is an enemy to God and to the Gentiles in regard to the gospel. Why? Because they have rejected Jesus. Therefore, they are God's enemy. Even Jesus says this. Jesus says, whoever is not for me, whoever is not with me is against me. You will find that in Matthew 12. But they are also enemies to the Gentile because they are actively opposing the gospel and they are trying to keep the Gentiles from receiving the gospel. So they are enemies. But that is not all that Israel is because they are also beloved. And as it says, this is true regarding election. God chose Israel. They are his covenant people. He made promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob to redeem his people. He promised to protect them and to keep them. And God is faithful. He is faithful in keeping all of his promises. He will not forget his people. He will preserve a faithful remnant. To bring this point home, look at what Paul writes in verse 29. He says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So the gifts and the calling here, they refer to the blessings of salvation. And what does he say about them? What does he say about the blessings of salvation? He says they are irrevocable. That means they cannot be changed. They cannot be taken away from us. They are guaranteed. And this is true despite the fact that God's people are unfaithful. They are disobedient. They are his enemies. And yet God's promises and his gifts to them still stand. How is that possible? It is only possible because of God, because He is faithful, and because He is good. You see, God's promises are not dependent upon Israel's worth. He doesn't keep His promise to Israel because they were worthy of it. No, not at all. Matter of fact, it's the exact opposite. He keeps His promises to them despite the fact that they have been unfaithful, despite the fact that they have been disobedient, despite the fact they've rebelled against Him. He also doesn't keep His promises to them because of their forefathers, because of their forefathers' worth. Their forefathers didn't earn this favor. No, God doesn't owe them anything because they too sinned. They too were disobedient. They too were unfaithful. God keeps his promise to Israel because he chose to, because he chose them, and because he loves them. And this is true for you as well. Think about that. God is faithful. He will keep all of his promises to you because he has chosen you, And because he loves you, not because we have earned his favor, not because we've earned his love. He is faithful to you even when you don't deserve it. You see, we are all sinners, and yet we are also loved by God. If you've been chosen by him, his calling, his gifts, his promises to you are irrevocable. They cannot be taken away from you. They are guaranteed. God is sovereign, and that should give all of us Great hope. Look at what else Paul says about Israel in verse 28. It says, Israel is an enemy. Why? For your sake. Now that's a a strange statement. Imagine if I was to come to you later on today and say, I am your enemy. I'm going to do everything I can to work against your happiness. I'm going to work against you actively. But I'm going to do it for your favor. Or for your sake, sorry. How would you respond to that? Well, for one, you'd probably think I'm crazy, and you wouldn't like it. 
But that is what Paul says here about Israel. He says that they are enemies for your sake. What does he mean by that? Well, it shows us that their rebellion, that their disobedience, their rejection of Jesus, their antagonism against us as Gentiles, all of these things serves a greater purpose. This reminds us that God is sovereign and that he is actively using Israel's disobedience to redeem us. Because of their disobedience, he shows us mercy. And that's where Paul goes in this passage. Look at verses 30 and 31. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Paul is talking about both Jews and Gentiles here. And notice what he says about them. He says both Jew and Gentile are disobedient. And he says both Jews and Gentiles have received mercy. The Jews' disobedience was used by God to show mercy to the Gentiles. In their rejection of the gospel, it opened the door for the gospel to be proclaimed to us, to be proclaimed to Gentiles, and for us to accept and to believe in the gospel. But God is not done with Israel. The mercy that is shown to the Gentiles, the mercy that is shown to us, God is going to use to make Israel jealous. Lincoln Duncan describes this well. He says that though Israel now is unbelieving, though Israel now is disobedient, through the mercy that God is showing through the Gentiles, he is going to show mercy to his ancient people so that their disobedience that led to the mercy you received will lead to their mercy. So that as his great goal is to bring the two groups into one, so his means show the mutuality of blessings that exist between the two groups. What he does amongst the Jews, he does for the sake of the Gentiles. And what he does amongst the Gentiles, he does for the sake of the Jews. So let me try to summarize what's going on here. Israel, they stumbled. They stumbled because they rejected the Messiah. They rejected Jesus. And so therefore, God has rejected them. And that led to the gospel being proclaimed to the nations. And through that proclamation, Gentiles started to believe. Gentiles came to know Jesus. They were saved. And then God uses the salvation of the Gentiles to make Israel jealous And therefore, turning the elect Jew, the faithful remnant, back to God and to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so what we see here is that God is merciful to both the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul summarizes this in verse 32. He says, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Now the word all here in this verse, it does not mean all without exception. He's not teaching some kind of universalist salvation. Rather, it means all without distinction. In other words, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, you are disobedient. You have been disobedient. You are an enemy of God, and you are in desperate need of mercy. But if God has chosen you, if he loves you, then whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, God shows you mercy. Despite your sin, despite your disobedience, God has mercy on you. Because of Jesus, your sins have been forgiven. You've been brought into his family. You are part of the kingdom of God. And if these things are true, if it's true that we are, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, that you have been disobedient and that you've received the mercy of God despite yourself, what room is there for arrogance? What room is there for boasting? What room is there to be conceited? There is none. The only response we can have, the only option that is set before us is one of humility and of gratitude. God is sovereign. He is merciful. He is faithful, 
So how do we respond to that? How do we respond to the faithfulness and the mercy and the sovereignty of God? Well, the more we understand the faithfulness of God, the more we embrace and accept His sovereignty, the more we experience His mercy, the more the way that we view both the church and the world will change. Listen to what Ligon Duncan says about how this passage changes the way we act as the church. He says, If we can be united through Jesus Christ as Jew and Gentile, there is no other barrier in the world that, can be, can, that cannot be transcended in the church. And that is God's goal for his people in the gospel, that in our embrace of the gospel and our communion with Jesus Christ, we would be one, and we would reflect that oneness to the world. So one of the questions I have for you this morning is, is are you united? As Tabernacle Church, are we united? And as the church universal, are we united? Are we one? And if the answer to that is no, then you need to repent. There is absolutely nothing that should separate us from one another. Whether it be the color of your skin, whether it be whatever social class you belong to, whether it be whatever political party you belong to. As a matter of fact, I am willing to bet, I know in the church universal this is true, and I'm willing to bet even within Tabernacle that come November, there are going to be people that are part of this church that are going to vote for Trump, that are going to vote for Clinton, that are not going to vote for anybody, or that are going to vote for some third candidate. And despite those differences, are you still united? Are you one? Can you come to the Lord's Supper and commune together and break bread together? Because the answer, because of the gospel, it should be yes. And it's a powerful testimony to the world that through Christ we can be one despite our many differences. Even sin cannot destroy our union with Christ and our union with one another. And why is that? It's because Jesus is greater than all of these things. He is the one who has united us, and we are all one in him. So the gospel changes the way that we view one another. It does not allow for any boasting. It does not allow us to exclude one another. It does not allow us to look down upon one another. It does not allow us to look at each other as second-class citizens. Because we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. We are united in Him. Second, the gospel changes the way we view the world. Listen to what John Piper says about this. He says, God has designed and guided history, both its disobedience and its obedience, so that in the end it will most fully display the reliability of His promises and the magnificence of His mercy to prevent human pride and to produce white-hot worship. God is in absolute and complete control of our world. Think about that. Everything that happens in our world, God is sovereign over it. Let us start to live like we actually believe that. Let us live like that's actually true, because it is true. We have great hope because we serve a God who is sovereign. We have great hope because we serve a God who has been merciful to us. And we have great hope because God is faithful. Let me close this morning with these words from Romans 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, which is the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. 
Do you glorify God for his mercy? Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that through him we have been forgiven, that our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west, that you have shown us mercy despite our disobedience, despite our unfaithfulness, despite the fact that we are one time your enemies. Lord, help us understand the depths of that love, the depths of that mercy shown to us. Lord, may that truly produce in us a humility. Forgive us for the times when we are proud. Forgive us for the times when we are arrogant. Forgive us for the times when we look down upon fellow brothers and sisters because of something that they believe that is different from us. Lord, help us be united as one church. Help us be a powerful testimony to our world that through Christ we are forgiven, that through Christ we are united as one. May we reflect that in the way that we love one another and in the way that we love you. Lord, we do pray for our world. We know that our world is in darkness, and yet we know that Jesus is the true light.